Just one thing to add as you open up to Genesis 45, we'll be looking at that te- whole text today. Um, as you turn there, I just also want to give thanks to uh, Mike, who is just up here, Mike Updegraff. He put tons of time and incredible talent that God has given him to create the covenant box that is in the back of our church now. It's going to hold our church covenant and uh, the signatures, the covenant book. Uh, so please, please uh, take a look at that. It is, it is it's, it's a labor of love. And so I wanted to thank him as well. We're here in Genesis 45. An article on the website of Science and Us described a study done on forgiveness. Part of their research included observing the behavior of animals in regards to forgiveness. The scientists observed conciliatory behavior in many different types of animals. In primates like baboons and mountain gorillas and chimps, chimps, they often, after a confrontation, they'll be seen embracing or even kissing. Scientists have observed similar behaviors in non-primates like goats and hyenas, the only species so far that has failed to show outward signs of reconciliation is the domesticated cat. (laughs) As far as scientists can detect, cats never forgive. Our hearts can be very cat-like. Chapter 45 really is a, is a wealth, as John would said in Sunday school, it, there's a, a wealth of gold there that we must mine. Joseph's story is put there providentially by God to show us a better way than being unforgiving, to soften our hearts. Not only did it give us an amazing example of forgiveness, which it does, but also it points us to an even greater forgiveness that is found in Christ. And that's what I want to mind for us this morning. Look with me at God's Word, chapter 45. We, we're coming into this story again. The context is Judah has stepped forward and said, Take me, not Benjamin. Keep me, not my brothers. Punish me and let my brothers go. And that is the last straw for Joseph. And we read in verse 1, when Joseph could not control himself before those who stood him, he cried, make everyone get out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And when they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do do not be dismayed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in these lands these last two years, and there are yet five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth, 
and to keep alive for you many survivors. It is it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the lord of all his house and ruler of all the lands of Egypt. So hurry up and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You should dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and herds and all that you have, there I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother's, his Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked to him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Joseph and Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers... Do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your household and come to me and I'll give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat of the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with goods with things from Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and provisions for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away And as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel among the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan and to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is alive and he is ruler over the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry them, The spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. Father God, I pray that you'll speak to your people as we heard that has been done for millennia. The exposition of your word will change our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last week, we asked the question, how? How was Joseph able to forgive such a deep and a long hurt? The answer, as we saw last week, is twofold in the text. Keeping God's grand purpose in mind. It was not you who sent me here, he says to his brothers. What you meant for evil, God intended for good, was the overarching theme there. And and secondly, we saw that Him keeping God's grand sacrifice in mind, that stepping forward of Judah 
just reminded him of the campfire stories that his grandfather Abraham would tell him about the severed animals and how he was supposed to walk through them and take the vow, but yet God did. Preaching the gospel to himself is how he, his heart was transformed. The simple truth is, God transformed God, uh, Joseph's heart. That's the how. Today, I want us to look at the text again and not ask the how question, but the what question. What? What is the fruit of a forgiving heart? What does freedom, the freedom of forgiveness look like in a life? What does a heart transformed into a forgiving heart act like? In other words, what are the effects of forgiveness? And the first thing we notice here is forgiveness restores relationship. Forgiveness restores relationship, a restored relationship. That's what we see front and center here in verses 3 and 4. As we enter the text, Joseph reveals who he is. He says, I'm your brother, and they don't believe him, right? They're dismayed, it says. They're standing back. They don't know what to make of that statement. As far as they're concerned, he's, he's dead and gone. But then you'll see in verse 4, he says, no, no, come close, come near. I see him taking off his royal headdress and, and, and wiping away the makeup that they would wear in Egypt and, and having them come close and look at his features, look at his eyes. If you've ever known a person when they were young and then when they're older, one of the things that doesn't change is, is their eyes. Everything around the eyes changes, but you can look deeply into somebody's eyes and know that person. After some convincing in verse 15, he throws his arms around them and they throw his, their arms around him and they just have a, a cry fest. They are just overcome with emotion. It is a picture there in 15 of an up-close, deep, intimate relationship being restored. And at the very foundation of Christ's mission in this world, why Christ came was to restore a deep, intimate relationship with us, to restore a broken relationship with us. That's what Paul declares so clearly in our public reading of Scripture today, right? That's why we read it, to reinforce this understanding. We said together, remember at one time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near, hear the language, through the blood of Christ. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens of, with God's people and members of God's household. Hear the language there. First of all, the language of separation and exclusion. Being a foreigner without hope, without God. It's language of segregation, of brokenness. But because of Christ's forgiveness, because of the forgiveness that's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have that language that Paul uses, you are brought near. 
citizens, and the best metaphor there, I think, and the one that speaks to me the loudest, is your members of God's household, your family. Your family again. You weren't family, and now you're family. Joseph's forgiveness leads the way to a restored relationship with his family, and that points us in the direction of a greater forgiveness to come in Jesus Christ. The restoration of a relationship with God, the restoration of intimacy with God. That is the effect of forgiveness that is found in Christ. That's what we read about in one of the, what's called the mountain peak of the New Testament, Romans 8. Paul there writes, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship, and by him we cry what? Abba, Father. Abba. Abba is a term that a young child would use in Aramaic towards his father. It is a term, we don't know exactly how to translate it, but it's a term of of deep intimacy, of, of being known and being known by somebody. Much like, as we've heard, the word dad or daddy would be used today in family. Todd, Pastor Todd Wilson, speaking on this, says, God is the creator and sustainer and judge of humanity. But the Bible wants us to understand that he is not the father of everyone. He only becomes our father when we stand in a unique relationship with him. He goes on to explain, sometimes my kids for fun will call me by my first name, Todd. Of course, they do it out of jest and not disrespect, but I'm always eager to correct them, he says. Because dad implies a deeply intimate and unique relationship I have with them. I explain to my kids, friends call me Todd, acquaintances call me Todd, co-workers call me Todd, but not family. You never want me to start treating you as though you know me as only Todd, I say to my kids. I wouldn't die for my friends and acquaintances, but I'd die at a drop of a dime for you. He concludes by saying, you want me. No, you need me to be your dad, not Todd. So call me dad. None of us, none of us, by the virtue of being born into this world, have the Abba relationship with God. The only person that has that right by birth is Jesus Christ. And it's only through Jesus Christ and what he has done on our behalf that we are able to call the creator and sustainer of this universe, Abba Father. We are able to have that restored, intimate, up-close relationship with God because of the forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. The best example of this is, is the communion table right here the best example of this. It's to remind us of our restored relationship. It's to remind us of the unique relationship we have with God the Father. It is to help us to recall that intimacy that we have with God. We call it communion. That's an intimate term, isn't it? In his book, Doubting, 
author Alistair McGrath, I commend him to you, Alistair McGrath, shared the following story. He said, an aunt of mine died some time ago, having lived to be 80 years old. She had never married. During the course of clearing out her possessions, we came across a battered old photograph of a young man. My aunt, it had turned out, fallen, had fallen hopelessly in love as a young girl. It had ended tragically, and she never loved anyone else, but she kept the photograph as a reminder to her. Partly to remind herself that she had once been in love with someone. As she had grown old, she knew that she would have difficulty believing that at one point in her life, she had really meant something to someone. And someone had once cared for her and regarded her as everything. As the years passed, it could all have seemed a dream, an illusion, something she invented in her old age to console her in her declining years, except for that photograph. This is our photograph. God gave us this because we are forgetful people. God gave us this so that we can recall that we are dearly loved by God. So much so that he gave his son to us. That's what this is to remind us of. The bread and juice remind us of our deeply intimate relationship, that restoration has occurred in our relationship with God. Secondly, the effect of forgiveness, first, is a restored relationship. The second effect of forgiveness is a restored concern. A restored concern. The Healer House ministry, I don't know if you know that, it's a ministry that is focused on forgiveness, has developed a, a list of questions that you're to ask yourself to, to kind of surface unforgiveness towards a, towards a person or people in your life. And I'll only give a partial list here, but check all that apply. You do not want to talk to the person or have them in your presence. If you're in their presence, you keep them at a distance. You try not to make eye contact during normal conversation. You give them the silent treatment when you're in their presence. Here's one. You complain to others about the person and desire for others to join in the agreement of your complaint. You tell lies about the person who hurt you. You draw people to your side. You come easily into agreement with evil thoughts about them. You're constantly in your memory bringing up past hurts. And finally, you have little or no concern for them and their well-being. There it is. The unforgiving heart simply does not have concern for that person. They care little, if anything, for them. They don't, certainly don't go out of their way for them. They do not care for them. What we see in Joseph is a massive concern for his family here, don't we? I mean, the, one of the first things 
that we see is he wants his family near, right? Come down to Egypt. Come down to Egypt. I'll send wagons. Come down to Egypt. Don't worry about getting here. I'll send 20 donkeys of food to get you here. And when you get here, I'm going to give you, I'm going to provide for you, right? Look at verse 11. It says, there I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all you have will not come to poverty. There's a grand concern for his family that just is born out of of, of a soft heart, of a forgiving heart. This is one of the effects of forgiveness in our hearts. You begin to care for the person that hurt you. You begin to care for the person that hurt you. I'm sure for some people here, that is just such an impossible statement with that person that you have in mind. But God can actually transform your heart. That's what we're seeing with Joseph here. He wasn't made that way. He was made like you and me. His heart was changed supernaturally by God. So here we see a care for them, a concern, a generosity towards them. And that's what happens when forgiveness takes root in your heart. Those things start to be your desires. You want the best for the person. You look out for them. You, like Joseph, want to provide for them and care for them. Years ago, I heard a a story, and I'm not going to be able to even think of the details of it, but... Uh, Tim Keller told of his own heart transformation. When he was in his pastorate, before he came to New York City, he said that that was his first pastorate and he was there for, I think, a couple decades. And he struggled with with this one person that was like a thorn in his side in in that ministry. And I think it was down in um, Pennsylvania. And and he, he he prayed and repented. And over the years... God transformed his heart. And and it came to an epiphany because one day they were having, they were planning, he and his wife Kathy were planning to have people over after church. And Tim suggested that they invite this person over. And his wife stopped him and said, do you realize that years ago you would not have volunteered to have that person come over? And he realized at that point that God had changed his heart, that the gospel had transformed his heart, and he wanted that person in his home. He wanted to have fellowship with that person. That's what happens when the gospel gets into your heart. That's what happens when it goes from here to here. That's the fruit of a gospel in someone's life. They become a forgiving person. They become more eager to pardon that resentment. Their heart changes, and they have concern for that person. They, they care for that person. There's actually emotion, positive emotion towards that person. There's generosity towards that person. The effect of forgiveness is concern. To put it simply, you begin to be more like your Heavenly Father, who provided skins for Adam and Eve, right after they stabbed him in the heart. Who provided an ark for Noah 
when the whole world was wicked and rebellious. Who provided manna in the wilderness, even though they grumbled and complained and wanted to go back to Egypt. Who provided Jesus Christ while we were yet sinners. That's who you begin to emulate. When the gospel actually changes your heart. You have to gaze upon Christ for this to become a reality in your own heart. There's a story about a certain monk who was given the task of preaching on God's concern for humanity and his love for humanity. And as the night fell and the cathedral grew dark and the congregation gathered, the monk went in and lit a single candle in the darkness and carried it to the crucifix And then he shone the light on his thorn of crowns, uh, uh, crown of thorns, and then on his hands, and then on his side, and blew out the candle and left. That's what you have to meditate on. You have that person in mind that, that you keep distant from you, that you do not have good emotional concern for? Do that. Meditate on Christ, what Christ did for you while you were yet stabbing him in the heart. The final effect of forgiveness is reward. Forgiveness restores relationship, concern, and it also restores a reward. Joseph's family was invited down to Egypt to eat, and they says it a couple different ways, to eat of the fat of the land, to, ha- to be- have the choicest place and best place in Egypt. And, and in verse 10, it's interesting, Joseph says, and you'll have the land of Goshen. Now Goshen, in our minds, it probably has a negative connotation, because that's where... They were enslaved, right? In the very next book, we find that that has become the ghetto. That is where they were commanded to to make bricks without straw. Goshen is also frequently just figuratively used in Scripture as representing compromise in a believer's life. You know, the Goshen in your life represents compromise with sin. But here in Genesis 45, it is used differently. Goshen is the choicest land in Egypt. It's located on the eastern side of the Nile Delta. Very fertile, beautiful, lush, abundant. It was, we could say, the the Garden of Eden of Egypt. And Joseph's family was invited there to inhabit it. So Joseph, because of his forgiveness said these people, his family, go from famine to fertility, from hopelessness to happiness, from suffering and difficulty to comfort and abundance. Joseph's forgiveness restores for them a place of abundance. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ offers you through his forgiveness, a place of abundance 
a restoration of our Goshen, which we call heaven. That is the reward that Jesus promises to everyone who trusts in him. Paradise, he calls it. Remember that scene on the, when he was crucified between those two thieves and the one thief continues to, to throw jabs at him? And the other thief says, don't you fear God? And he turns to, to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you know what Jesus said. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. He calls it paradise. For those who trust in Jesus, there is a restored paradise, a restored reward. For those who repent and come to accept Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, there is a restoration of heaven for you. A new heaven and a new earth. A place, I love how Nancy Guthrie puts it, a place that is even better than Eden. I commend her new book to you by that same name, Even Better Than Eden. I think she makes a compelling argument for our place of glory that we're headed toward is going to be better than the Garden of Eden. I love that thought, don't you? I love that thought. I'm drawn to that thought. That heaven will be a place better than Eden. I read 1 Corinthians 2.9 and that's where my mind goes. No eye has seen, nor ears heard, nor mind conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. That's describing heaven. Marco Polo, when he lay dying, was urged by his detractors to recant and withdraw all the stories that he had told about China and the Far East. They didn't believe him. But he refused. And some of his last words were, I have not told you half of what I saw. That is true of heaven. The word does not tell us half of what it's going to be like. Heaven is going to be such a glorious place. It's described in scripture as a mansion with many rooms. You know, we pass by, we drive by, we live in an island that has great riches and we drive by some of these mansions and I'm going to speak for you. Sometimes you go, how awesome would it be? It's described as a safe city in Hebrews 12, a place of abundance in Isaiah 65, a place where there is no hunger or thirst, the basic needs, those, those, those needs that drive us are taken care of in Revelation 7, of overwhelming beauty. I, I mean, just read chapter 21 of Revelation because that's what is, is just pouring out of John. This is a gorgeous place. You know, there's a lot of prayers that we pray here of praise to God about living in such a beauty here, and we do. But heaven is going to be so much more. It's a place of life and health, Isaiah 25, of purity and holiness, Galatians 5, a place of satisfying purpose. Satisfying purpose. A place where our Savior lives, Revelation 22 where the person that loves you the most lives. Perhaps that's the final word on heaven that we really need. 
It's a story of a man that lay dying as his pastor was telling him something about the place. And the man was dying and he asked his pastor, tell me about the place where I'm going. And the pastor fumbled for a reply until he heard a scratching at the door. And he said to the man, do you hear that? It's your dog. You left him downstairs and he's grown impatient and come up here and he hears your voice. He has no notion what is on the inside of this door, but he knows that you are here and he wants in. That's how we should be with heaven. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. And remind us through this table how much you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.